Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this on Tuesday, May 14th, which is right after Avengers Endgame just wrapped its third weekend in domestic release. We're number one. We're number one. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. What is it? $728 million in ticket sales in North America as of Monday. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're number two. We're number two. <laughs> well, actually, no. They, they Third week in a row, they were number one. I thought this would be the week that we'd be Avatar. I'm sorry. That's why I had to revise the oh, word number one. The word number sorry. two. I was, yes, I was yes. predicting an Avatar topple today, and uh, apparently from the numbers, it didn't happen just yet. You bring up an interesting point, because as I was just mentioning, Pokemon Detective Pikachu came out this past weekend and did a very respectable $54 million, which was just a little bit less than the $63 million that Endgame pulled in and again third weekend into the box office and as you mentioned we are creeping up on james cameron's avatar as of right now if you factor in how it's doing internationally endgame has pulled in 2.5 billion dollars so there's just 277 million dollars that separates avengers endgame from what avatar pulled in back in 2009 2010 and if we were being fair here we'd you know, adjust what the box office, but we're not talking fair here, Aaron. This is, this is Hollywood. Nobody's fair out there. The challenge, though, is the next three weeks. We have John Wick Chapter 3 opening this Friday. After that, we have Aladdin that opens on May 24th. And did you see any of the this, this stuff that was being tweeted out early this week about Godzilla, King of the Monsters? No, but I've been enjoying the ads that they've been putting out for him, and I hope that this time it, it actually looks like a Godzilla movie will have a Godzilla in it. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you've kind of nailed it. They actually did something very cool. In fact, we, we have to figure out how to get on this list, Aaron, because what they did for this particular press junket is they flew a bunch of entertainment reporters over to Japan, and they actually did the junket at Toho Studios. That's where they actually showed them Godzilla King of the Monsters in, in its final form. And based on the stuff that got tweeted out, this may be the best big screen monster movie ever. And it looks like it's going to do some fairly substantial damage at the box office starting late May, early June. And that's the firewall as far as, as Endgame is concerned, that once Godzilla comes out, the number of screens it's on has to start dipping this weekend, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're getting towards blockbuster season. I think that Disney did the smart thing by making sure that they jumpstart the season. Mm -hmm. Nobody's really used to blockbuster season starting quite this early. Oh, it's summertime. Yeah. And so by jumping in a little bit early on blockbuster season, mm -hmm. you suck in all that money before anyone has a chance to spend it in a different theater. And then uh, you let everyone else fight over what's left over what used to be blockbuster season. But lo and behold, on, on Disney's calendar, it doesn't quite line up with the way everyone else's does in that season. They've got other stuff they got to put in there. That's very true. In fact, you know, there's a lot of people who argue it's, it, it is 
the Avengers movies that should have sort of showed that, well, look, blockbuster season, which used to start Memorial Day weekend, can actually start in late April, early May. So I don't know if you saw the story that just this past week about what Robert Downey Jr. wound up getting for his work in Infinity War. He got to walk up to the Scrooge McDuck money vault with basically a big old net. And they, Disney was like, four scoops, Robert, just four scoops of money. And he was like, okay. And those four scoops translated into how much, Jim? Uh, $75 million. I love your version of this more than the, the actual. I mean, what Robert did was, was very smart. He opted not to take straight salary, but instead cut a deal with Kevin Feige to a percentage of the box office. So yeah, $75 million, or a reported $75 million. And given what Endgame has made in comparison to Infinity War, probably will do a little bit better later this summer when they, they're divvying up the cash. You know, and again, I know there are people, oh my God, $75 million, and when you, you figure how much screen time Robert Downey Jr. actually had in Infinity War, it's like, I don't begrudge the guy this because... If you jump back to 2009, when they were putting together Iron Man and John Favreau was fighting tooth and nail with Paramount, in the end, one of the things that really sealed the deal was A, Downey did a screen test, which, you know, he really didn't have to do at that point in his career, and B, he played the role of Tony Stark in the very first Iron Man for $500,000, which is a fourth of what Edward Norton got paid that very same year for being in The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, but I also think that Robert Downey Jr. had a better idea of the long game at that point. Whereas, you know, some people sign up and go, yeah, I'd like to be the Hulk. And they think, you know, a movie to maybe a whole trilogy if we're really lucky. Mm-hmm. But the way that, you know, Kevin had envisioned it and it was the crazy vision. We're going to have all these interconnected movies and you'll keep coming back and just popping in and out. And, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is like, yeah, play the long game. I could play this for more than just the trilogy. I could be, you know, peppered in elsewhere throughout the universe. And then we're going to have these massive team ups that I'm going to be in. So if they're planning on a trilogy of those, that bumps me up to a minimum of six movies at the worst. And you don't take pay cuts every time a new you know movie comes out. Your salary goes up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think Robert Downey Jr. saw if this works out, and then by the time where he gets to, I don't, you know what, Kevin, I don't need a paycheck for Avengers. I just need the money scoop and five minutes in the Scrooge McDuck vault, and I'm good. You know, it's good for him. Yeah, this is true. This is true. And, and you know, forgive me for stepping out of a relatively happy story into. A, a sad story, but about three hours before we recorded here, folks, the Los Angeles County folks brought charges against Key Morgan, who used to be Stanley's business manager. They hit him with five counts of elder abuse. These felony charges were actually filed back on Friday and had just now come into light. The 43-year-old Morgan is being charged with theft, embezzlement, forgery, or fraud against an elder adult and false imprisonment of a, an elder adult. There's also a misdemeanor charge that alleges elder abuse. You and I talked about this last year. You know, I think we made our feelings pretty clear at that point about how we feel about somebody who'd take advantage of someone in their 90s. 
I guess it's good after the fact here that this guy's being brought up on charges because... Oh, it's absolutely good. I mean, there's a, a couple of key points in your life where you need to be protected. And, you know, <laughs> one is when you're a child, an infant, you know, you need a, a guardian up until you're 18 before you let them loose into the wild. And then you go live a long, full, healthy life and all the joy and happiness and sorrow that goes along with that over the years. And then at the, towards the end of your life, when you, you know, can't get around so well on your own and you need a, a little extra help and to have someone take advantage of you just because you are in a situation where you are not physically able to thump them on the head and say no. Mm -hmm. The worst part is there were reports of this type of abuse earlier. We wished it would have been taken care of at the time, but unfortunately, in so many of these instances, it has to be, you know, sometimes years after the fact before any sort of justice is even approached. This is so true. I'm glad that the wheels of justice are in motion at the very least. And, you know, I can't predict innocence or guilt, but I do hope that someone, if not this person, is held accountable for what happened. I think that sums it up quite nicely. Pivoting to hopefully a happier story, again, just before we recorded this, or this evening, the MTV Movie Awards came out, and it turns out that between Endgame and Captain Marvel, these two Marvel Cinematic Universe movies are splitting six nominations. And while we're talking about Captain Marvel, for those of you who collect you know, all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, the digital version of that film becomes available on May 28th, and the physical Blu-ray uh, goes for, uh, goes on sale June 11th, and we can expect to see six deleted scenes. It'll be kind of interesting to see what we get that we didn't see in the theatrical release of Captain Marvel. I'm hoping more goose scenes. You know what I've actually been mildly surprised by is that there have been no extended Marvel movies. There's no director's cuts of anything. Hmm. I mean, Lord of the Rings, oh God. epic, you know, they added hours to that. Mm -hmm. And with all the deleted scenes and stuff that they shot that could have made it in, I'm almost surprised that Disney hasn't said, boy, we sure could find a way to make more money off of all of this. Why don't we add 30 seconds to every movie and make everyone on the planet rebuy it because we put the word director's cut on it and added two 15-second clips somewhere in there that you probably won't even notice as you watch through it again. This past weekend, I was channel serving and came across Godfather Part 2. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember... Coppola actually took the two Godfather films and for NBC created, I guess it was called The Godfather Chronicle, where he took all of the footage that they had shot for the films that they hadn't been able to, to squeeze into Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 and created this epic eight-hour event for television where obviously it being network television, they had to cut back a little bit on things like the tollboat scene. It's a grape juice. It's nothing. <laughs> but, you know, I, I have to wonder whether we're going to get something official now that we're at the close of the Infinity Saga, so to speak. I wonder if somebody will wade in. Because, again, I think you and I have talked about, you know, the various time jumps and, you know, where the original Doctor Strange fits in, timeline-wise and all that. The one thing that I hope 
that Disney Plus uh, engineers back at the labs are smart enough to do mm-hmm. is please, please add a MCU chronological order, including the TV shows. Like, I want Peggy Carter in there. Mm-hmm. I want Cap. You know, so it'd be, I guess, Cap would come first. Mm-hmm. Then you'd go through the Peggy Carter series. Then it would, like, time jump to... Uh, Iron Man and you know just the whole thing if if it has to include Daredevil because they mentioned the incident at, in New York do they oh god yeah all of all of the uh defenders shows mm-hmm. they reference Thor and and Iron Man and all that oh. like they just buzz around daily so it's one of those things like as the MCU has grown, not only have I collected the movies, but I would rip them onto my hard drive and then I would create a playlist that mm-hmm. makes everything in chronological order. And I even took those darn one shots out of the earlier Marvel movies that were the special features and short self-contained stories and put those in there as well. And it's really challenging because there's a point in, I think it's Iron Man 2 and Thor where, or Iron Man 1 and Thor, I don't remember, but Coulson takes off and the movie timelines cross. <laughs> and so one movie stops, another one picks up for a few minutes and then, and then it continues from there. So, but it's fun to try and figure all of that out and then watch it the way that it's supposed to happen chronologically. So I, I really hope that Disney Plus has a MCU chronological that just gives you like 100,000 hours of straight MCU from beginning to end. Now, so which one is the the one where Coulson stops at the gas station and they really establish him? It's on a, the way to Thor's hammer or something happened yeah. on the way to Thor's hammer. Yeah. And that's the one where he takes off from Iron Man. Mm-hmm. He leaves Stark. And he's like, they found something in New Mexico. I got to leave. Mm-hmm. And then you would put in that one shot, and then it connects to him arriving at in Thor's movie where they discover the hammer. No, I love that one. I, I love him as a badass. And speaking as Coulson, as a badass, we just had season six of Marvel's Avengers of S.H.I.E.L.D. begin its run this past Friday, uh, 8 o'clock on ABC. And how did we feel about the first episode of season six? Unfortunately, I have to overall say that I'm underwhelmed. However, mm-hmm. upon analysis of my own inner feelings, mm-hmm. I understand why I'm underwhelmed and I'm not surprised by it. It's nothing that the story did wrong or the actors did wrong or anything silly like that. It's the advertising nowadays. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, they had a shot for the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that revealed Colson. We knew he was coming back, mm-hmm. right? They put it straight in the ad. No surprise. And then in the episode, when they reveal that Coulson's back, they take like a minute to like zoom up his leg real slow as he walks all menacing towards somebody. And then they go up the leg and then up the back. And then they reveal all of a sudden it's Coulson. Like it's a big shock. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. You showed me that like a couple weeks ago in the ad. <laughs> Why is this supposed to be all built up like it's suspenseful all of a sudden? So it's one of those things where you have to ask, what do you put in an ad nowadays, Jim? What do you put in that's, that doesn't ruin it, that makes it enticing? Because you can't just have a couple of agents go talking you know, over coffee about nothing. You got to put in something juicy. Mm-hmm. But you can't put in the biggest spoiler. So where do you fall on that? I mean, Marvel movies have seemed to do a very good job with the way that they handled Endgame specifically, 
no spoiler warnings for so many weeks. Then the Russo brothers come out and they give a thumbs up. And the next day, a Spider-Man trailer drops that has more spoilers than most movies have in them with the, the multiverse. So, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing right now? I don't know because we haven't seen the Spider-Man movie. Marvel could still pull the rug out from under us on that whole multiverse thing. I don't know. But as far as Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. goes, there were some beautiful space shots that looked like they could be up on a cinematic screen. There was a lot of really great moments, but it seems to me that from this first episode, our overall story arc is going to be, we have to find Fitz, mm-hmm. and, and now Coulson's a bad guy. And it's like, okay, but I, do I really have to spend an entire season getting to Fitz? I mean, I, I love him and Simmons together, so... You know, just get them together and don't make me go through a whole, you know, nine stories to get back to them. So then we can have a story of them together. At least get me to them in the next couple of episodes, because I don't want to spend too much time on that. Don't get me wrong. I think what you say is is valid. It is part of the world we live in now in regard to advertising that so often the people who are in marketing, it's like they forget that they're supposed to be the sizzle, not the steak. And they put together these these spoiler filled things with the no, with the hope that people will turn out to you know for the other five questions that haven't been answered by the two minute long trailer. But yeah, I thought as as an episode, this one in particular because it was actually directed by Clark Gregg, the the gentleman who plays Coulson, was very well crafted. Had some some incredible action set pieces and some really great use of effects. But you're right, it was definitely a tease. What have we got, 13 episodes? Yeah, I don't remember the episode count, but I consider it to be an endless buffet until they tell me otherwise. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but the, the nugget of it is, if you were to try and sum up the entirety of the episode with like four key plot points, mm-hmm. I mean, we have to see um, Mac try and become the new leader. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is a very big story arc for that character. I think, you know, when you're in S.H.I.E.L.D., you're used to taking charge of a situation because you encounter so much wild stuff. Mm-hmm. You know well enough that whatever you're about to see, you're not prepared to handle. You know, it's it's that far out ahead of you. And you're used to dealing with the crazy stuff from space and time travel and super science stuff that most mortals can't deal with. So I think that Mac being a leader is you can plug him in and he'll hit the ground running. I don't see that as a interesting thread. I think he's ready. Plug him in now. So since he's in that position, I don't expect a whole lot from that story arc. And as far as the other characters, we have to figure out why Coulson's a bad guy. We have to get to Fitz and it's Simmons wanting to get to Fitz and everyone else trying to get to Fitz. But what else is happening right now? I I can't help but notice that just now you said, I believe the phrase was, not prepared to handle. Mm-hmm. And what's <laughs> kind of funny is you made a joke last week about the Spider-Man musical. I think you were teasing about the number of actors who fell out into the audience when that show was on Broadway in 2002-2011. Well, I actually dr- drilled down into that story on the back of your joke, and boy, this was definitely a bunch of people who were unprepared to handle The Great White Way. Well, we'll get to that in just a sec on the, on the second half of the show. This Broadway show, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, that title, evidently one of the, the producers, mentioned that his, his young son at one point 
was in bed and was frightened and in an inversion of turn on the light daddy it's turn off the dark and he just remembered that and that that's that's how that got tacked onto the show i guess for me Aaron, what's fascinating about how this show came about is it it actually started as so many broadway musicals do now as, as a movie but in this case it was the sam raimi the very first spider-man in 2002 it was number one at the box office and when you consider this was the year that two towers came out and star wars episode two attack of the clones and harry potter the chamber of secrets the fact that all of those big films came out in spite of the sam raimi spider-man still came out on top said a lot you know there was a real hunger out there for spider-man and so a gentleman called tony adams this is Blake Edwards' producer. They worked forever on, I think they did six Pink Panther movies together. He's the one who went to Marvel and said, I think there's a Broadway musical in this. And Marvel said, if the check clears, sure. <laughs> you know. So, But what Tony wanted to do was kind of do a riff on what Disney had done with The Lion King, the, the animated version of The Lion King. They had brought in Elton John to do the score. And so Adam said, well, let's, let's get somebody, you know, another well-known musical performer that's never done the stage before. And, and he reaches out to Bono and the Edge, and he asks them, you know, would you be interested in writing music for a Spider-Man musical? And Bono and the Edge say yes, but only if Julie Taymor will come and direct the stage version of Spider-Man. And Julie Taymor is, is the woman who did the stage version of The Lion King for Disney Theatrical. The Lion King for Broadway was ridiculously expensive to mount. The, the initial production costs of, up front were $25 million. But it became this massive hit when it began being presented to the Amsterdam, New Amsterdam Theater. Is, is that the one that has the cutouts of the animals and the they kind of, I don't know if project shadows is correct at all in that, but aren't the costumes kind of like big oh, yeah. cutout type? Julie's very into, she comes out of the world of avant-garde theater. She comes out of the world of, of puppetry and crazy light effects, the use of shadow puppets and that sort of thing. And, and this is the thing that gave this this show you know its unique look and made this phenomenon launches in 97 soon there were touring companies and there's sit-down productions around the globe which is why as of the fall of 2010 this show had generated 4.2 billion dollars in worldwide ticket sales because there are so many productions of the line came being produced around the world at this point uh, Tamar is a very busy woman because she's, she's being hands-on with every one of these. And so it takes uh, Adams a few years to persuade her to come direct the, the stage version of Spider-Man. But like I said, because she's very into avant-garde theater, what finally convinces her to do this Broadway musical is that Tony agrees to let her fold in the Greek myth of Arachne into the Spider-Man origin story. Do we have any Greek history on what Arachne is all about? I want to say she is a woman. She he entered into a a weaving contest with the gods, and but because she wove something that offended the gods, they turned her in to the world's first spider. 
I'm mm. probably completely mangling the myth, but you get okay. the idea there. Okay. Anyway, uh, jump ahead October 2005. Tony Adams finally gets Bono, The Edge, and Dave, Julie Taymor together in his apartment. They're all going to sign their contracts for the Spider-Man musical. But before anybody can put pen to paper, Tony suffers, you know, has a stroke, and then he dies two days later. So... Like, right from the beginning, this show is snake bit. But again, they've got the rights lined up. They've got Bono. They've got the edge. They've got Julie Taymor. So it, after, a, you know, a period of mourning for, for Tony Adams, development goes forward. And Bono and the Edge write the, the music and the lyrics. Taymor hammers out the book with their longtime collaborator, Glenn Berger. 2007, there are readings in the musical. And Taymor's, uh, like she did in The Lion King, is doing all of this design work on sets and costumes. And But the problem is, by early 2009, she's already burned through $25 million in development of money. But, but to be fair, a lot of this money is going into tests for the flying and, and fighting sequences uh, for this Broadway musical. And and hospital bills. Well, we're getting to the <laughs> hospital bills. Um, oh, yeah, we're their hospital bills. Anyway, at this point, they've got a theater, the Foxwood, uh, formerly the Hilton Theater. However, the financial people are sort of sussing out what Julie wants to do, and it's like, geez, this is going to be another $27 million. So we need more investors. Now, the way you get investors is you you get stars. So June of, of 2009, they announced that Rachel Evan Wood and Alan Cummings have been signed to be in the show. Now, Alan Cummings, you obviously know from, was it X-Men 2 where he played? The Amazing Nightcrawler. There we go. He was supposed to play the Green Goblin in the show, whereas Wood was supposed to play Mary Jane. And with these two stars attached, they were able to get more investors to come on board. And again, they kept beating the drum about, remember, the last musical that Julie Taymor did, you know, $2.4 billion in ticket sales worldwide. This is sure to be the same sort of bonanza, right? So August of 2009, the Walt Disney Company buys Marvel Entertainment for $4 billion. And here's Disney Theatrical, an arm of the Disney Company. Decade-long history with Julie Taymor at this point. They opt not to get involved in the Spider-Man musical. The story I've been told is that after The Lion King, Disney and Tamor tried to get a version of Pinocchio going for the stage in late 99, 2000, and evidently Tamor went really, really dark, or a lot of money was paid for development, no show came out of it, and, and then there were bad feelings. So I can make you a couple billion dollars, but not a second chance. Got it. They had the opportunity to get in on Spider-Man uh, Turn Off the Dark, and it was just like, thank you, no, we'll, we'll be over here. and Have a good time with your show. Well, there's also the possibility that they looked at what they were proposing of swinging people to and fro from high above the actual stage, and they went... Yeah, that's a, a whole bunch of lawsuits and hospital bills. So maybe they just passed on the overall idea as well as the person who was directing it. Three years previously, what had Disney brought to Broadway? Mary Poppins. That show actually ends with Mary Poppins flying off the stage out over the audience. In fact, she, she literally flew past the mezzanine, past the balcony, and up. So it's like, 
they knew the challenges of flying a character. When they do Step in Time in that musical, Bert actually dances up the edge of the proscenium and hangs upside down and tap dances there before he comes back down. So a lot of the stuff that was being done on a much grander scale and much more ambitious in Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, they had done with Mary Poppins because Disney won't come in as an, uh, as an investor. They have to chase down additional investors, which means that they're not getting the show to Broadway quite as quickly as they had originally hoped, which is why March of 2010, Evan Rachel Woods backs out of the production, largely because now they pushed the show from a, a launching in the summer. Now it's a fall of 2010. And the very next month, Alan Cummings also bails on the show it's with the same delay in production excuse. And by May of 2010, they finally pulled together all the funding they need. Unfortunately, at this point now, Aaron, the cost of producing the show is up to $65 million. With those sorts of upfront costs, Spider-Man, it'll have to sell a million dollars worth of tickets each week in order to stay in the black. Yeah, no, you just put that on the shelf and you walk away, man. That You call that one an experiment <laughs> that failed, and you move on, man. Well... Who kept driving this bus down the ditch? <laughs> oh, we have Bono. We have the edge. We have Julie Taymor. We've no, got you had Bono. You had the edge. It's over. It's in the past. Let it go. Come with us into the future. I know. I know. You see, that this is why they need your voice in their ear. Summer of 2010, the, the hype machine turns on. Uh, and this straight from the press release here, and the most technically complex show ever on Broadway with 27 aerial sequences of characters flying and engaging in aerial combat. Downside of that sort of ambition is it's going to take a lot of rehearsal time, given all the hardware that's got to be installed to do this thing. And in fact, for the flying sequences, there were 30 different motors scattered around the theater and they were all controlled by computers. And with Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, there was so much technology. It was so expensive. It's like, we can't take the show on the road. We have to stay in one place. We just have to figure this out in previews before we open. Rehearsals begin in August of 2010. At this point, the plan is the show will go into previews November 14th, and then Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark will open on Broadway December 21st, just before Christmas. September 2010, the cast moves into the Foxwood Theater. They have to reconfigure the whole theater. In fact, the, because so much of the flying involves taking off and landing on the mezzanine level of the theater, they actually renamed that part of the theater the Flying Circle. But because of all of this technology that's needed to control the speed and the height and the trajectory of all these performers who are flying, and that's the other thing that there's the name actors that are playing Spider-Man, Mary Jane and the, the Green Goblin, and then there were the stunt doubles that are doing a lot of the actual flying around for Spider-Man. They're not in the theater a day uh, when they're rehearsing what's supposed to be one of the great big wow moments of the movie, where... Spidey basically gets slingshotted from the back of the theater to the lip of the orchestra. And as he lands, he's supposed to do that trademark Spider-Man pose. The very first time they do it, the performer lands and breaks a toe. But okay, it's just a toe. Just, I got nine more. Let's, let's roll. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's a month later now. And here's Kevin Al-Abun. He's uh, another one of the performers who doubles for Spidey in the show. And he's about to recreate 
that very same moment the the slingshotting from the back of the theater and land on the lip of the orchestra only he's doing it in front of a bunch of ticket brokers who were there at the foxwood theater for a group sales event i get ideas we'll, we'll give these people you know a taste of the show we'll show them some of the effects we'll show them the costumes and then we'll go back and talk to all their groups and they'll sell giant blocks of tickets and Poor Kevin slingshots from the back of the theater, lands on the lip of the orchestra, but instead of striking the Spider-Man pose, he collapses in agony because he's just broken both of his wrists <laughs> in front of a group of ticket brokers. And they all go home, they all tell their friends about what they just saw, and this is the start of the gossip about how troubled Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is. And... The producers realizing that, oof, you know, I, we clearly need more time. They push off the start of previews from November 14th to November 28th. But that means they have to refund the tickets for 13 performances of this, which now is still a heavily sold out show because people want to see Julie Taymor's new musical, The Woman Who Gave Us the Lion King. Now, don't they have to find new actors continue? I mean, the guy that just broke both of his wrists, he was mm. a double. So who was the double for him? Did they just have like a line of 14 guys waiting in the wings? You're like, all right, next. <laughs> And then you hear a snap and a cry. It's like, all right, next. No, we still haven't quite got it perfected, but we've only got four days. Next. You are not far wrong, but thank goodness. November 17th, here comes the New York City inspectors who have heard about the injuries and insist that the stunts in the show have to be presented to them. And so... They just started crying from inside the theater and entered at random. They didn't hear. They didn't get a call. It was somebody walking by that thought somebody was being tortured. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you who was probably crying at that point was the producers because they reported this to OSHA. And OSHA hit Spider-Man with two workplace safety violations. And they eventually had to pay a fine of $12,600. Well, good, man. They should have had to pay more than that. They should have had to pay for all the hospital. I mean, they. Oh, we, I think it should have been shut down a long, long time ago we in the story. We have not even gotten to the hospital yet. Though we're about to. Uh, November 28th, first preview of the show again in Foxwood Theater. Very first public performance, Natalie Mendoza, who's who played the role of Arachne, is standing backstage, ready to make her entrance. She gets struck in the head with a piece of equipment while she's standing in the wings and suffers a concussion. A direct result of this backstage accident, she misses two weeks of performances and eventually decides, you know, there, there were safer places to work. So she actually withdraws from the show on December 30th. 20 days before that, Christopher Tierney, one of the Spider-Man doubles, he falls 20 feet off of a piece of scenery directly into the orchestra pit in front of a full audience. This accident supposedly happened because Tierney's harness was not connected to its safety cord, but they end the show. And they take the poor guy off to Bellevue Hospital Center. He spends a week in the hospital, does 10 weeks in rehab, is so badly injured he doesn't return to the show till april of 2011 but by this point the producers are like oh screw it we are not opening january 11th because remember we pushed it from december 21st to january 11th now we're pushing it to february 
2011. What exactly do they hope to fix in that time? I mean, is it new rigging? Is it new safety measures? Is it to the point where they'll be in the middle of a song written by Bono and The Edge, the glider will come up to the second level of the audience, and then they'll go, excuse me, while the Green Goblin gets out of his 17 safety harnesses. And then five minutes later, after three guys get unbuckling the dude, he steps out, finishes the song. What can you do but either change it dramatically so people aren't risking their life every time they go to do their job? Mm-hmm. I mean, I would almost say scrap this. If we're going to go that far with Spider-Man, let's talk to the people at Cirque du Soleil. Let's poach one of their top thinkers of designing those type of things where people are aerial all the time, but they're safe. And what can we do with that? You see, now the, this is the thing. You have the clear-eyed vision of somebody outside the situation looking in these folks are inside of the burning building so you know the very thing you asked you know what are you going to do you push off the the opening to february 11th well their plan is they're going to stage a new final number make further rewrites to the dialogue and consider adding and cutting scenes and maybe inserting new music yeah because dialogue was the problem when people (laughs) were breaking their wrists eventually what they decide is the problem isn't the safety. The problem is Julie <laughs> Taymor. Oh, right, yeah. She gets forced off of the show March 9th, 2011, and they bring in an expanded creative team. And now, at this point, it's like, we need to seriously overhaul this show. The show isn't going to open officially till summer of 2011. And just after they make that announcement, yet another cast member oddly enough the woman who replaced natalie mendoza in the role of arachne her name is tv capario she injures her neck during the performance and has to withdraw from the show for two weeks while she recovers from that injury and at this point the producers are like okay between the bad publicity and the safety issues we have to step out of the spotlight here so they actually shut down the show for three and a half weeks and they refund all the tickets that they sold for that point and they now start to think as you you do Aaron it's like okay we have to address the safety stuff but we also have to fix the show so when it reopens on May 14th they say better harnesses and they've got better songs and the story's a little bit clearer but at some point they just decide look we can't just continue to futz with this so after 182 preview performances Spider-Man finally, Turn Off the Dark finally opens on Broadway June 14, 2011. And at this point, with having to bring in the expanded team and all that, the production costs of this Broadway musical are now at $75 million. Again, three times what Disney spent for Lion King on Broadway in 1997. And industry experts are standing outside of it because nobody's ever spent this much money on a Broadway show before. And they're like... You understand that even with 1,900 seats inside of the Foxwood theaters, with the huge development of production costs, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark will have to run at full capacity for five years before (laughs) the show's investors will get paid off. And then maybe the show will start eking out a profit. That just doesn't happen. The word of mouth is is so bad. It's as you made the joke. This is the show that you go and sit in the audience and do I need to wear a hard hat? Spider-Man kept wetting himself every time he swung <laughs> over the audience. And 
So, November 19, 2013, the producers announced that Spider-Man, the Broadway version of Spider-Man, will close on January 4th, 2014. And sure enough, it closes in early January, post a $60 million loss. The producer's trying to put the best possible spin on it. He's talking about, well, you know, we've already talked with casinos in Las Vegas about moving the show out there. But then by July of 2014, when no casino in Las Vegas is willing to roll the dice on Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, Cole announces the Broadway musical is now being reimagined as an arena show. With the plan being that they'll relaunch a, a radically restaged version of the show that features Bono and Edge's music. It'll be on a nationwide tour starting in late 2015, 2016. That doesn't happen either. There's then talk about... Uh, I'm going to pull out a trampoline and uh, we're just going to have have them jump up and down while they so, hit a cassette of Bono's song. Just, we'll just so, keep scaling it back until someone buys what has already lost $60 million. I mean, come on, who wouldn't dive in on that deal? But here's the thing. Disney shows that have not done well on Broadway, Tarzan, Little Mermaid, they mention London and Hamburg. The German production of of Tarzan and The Little Mermaid both did very well there. These theater companies were willing to take a chance on a Disney failure. They looked at Spider-Man and it's like, pass, hard pass. Don't want anything to do with that. And so here we are, five years later, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is nowhere. They haven't done anything with this yet. And when you think about what we just had in theaters this past Christmas even with with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which showed that a really radical, different take on Spider-Man can find an audience. Oh, hell, it can win an Academy Award. If you had been a betting man in 2010 and looked at, okay, so this is Julie Taymor, the the director of the Tony Award-winning Lion King for Disney, and this is a show with music by Edge and Bono. Oh, when award season comes around, that's going to do great. And nothing. I've got the perfect reimagining for all of this, and they can make a lot of money. Which is? We're going to do a documentary of all the stuff that happened back then. We'll probably have to hire some people and and film it. And the twist is, it's going to be like Amityville Horror, where when an actor walks in to screen for Peter Parker, Spider-Man, Green Goblin, whatever, we're going to just put in a little voice that goes, Get out! And then they'll they'll continue they'll just brush it off and continue through the audition process and they'll play the the part for a couple of minutes and something will will happen and then just randomly Jim we'll cut to a a picture of uh, a window and on that window will be like a couple dozen flies and we'll play some very ominous music and you'll get the hint that something evil is transpiring in this place but you just don't know what. And uh, yeah, I mean, all you got to do is just put a little tweak on that story and you've got a whole new franchise ready for the big screen. Okay, you heard the idea here first, folks. Okay, somebody has to do something with this. Because seriously, there are so many other stories we could have gotten into with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This is the the Reader's Digest version, but there's got to be listeners uh, to the, the Marvelous Disney podcast that actually saw this show on Broadway. We'd love to hear from you about what you thought. Did you get to take home a piece of the actor? <laughs> <laughs> More to the point, there have to be people who went to the previews, who saw 
this thing as the Titanic as it was steaming into the iceberg. I'd love to hear anybody who saw it during, you know, while Tamor was still directing, or for that matter, who saw the show while the new expanded creative team came in and tried to figure out how to write the ship. Please, folks, if you have any stories from this story, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you about Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. It was one of these shows I always meant to go see when I was down in New York, and I waited too long, and by January of 2014, it was gone. Well, they ran out of actors. No, no, the actors live on, we hope. So I guess that does it for this week's, and and if you head over to iTunes and rate and recommend our show, likewise, if you could swing by Bandcamp, and subscribe. We do an awful lot of podcasts here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. We do Disney Dish with Glenn Testo. We do Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor. We do Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We do Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. We do I Want That, the podcast about Disney merch with Michelle Valladolid. And of course, thanks for listening. And we will be back with a new show soon. Till then, take care. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.